The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Tuesday, November 2nd, 5.04 p.m. Eastern Time, 2.04 p.m. Pacific Time, where Oren is. And uh, we're four minutes late because Oren had some tabs open. And, you know, (laughs) placing, we're like all about placing blame in the proper proper, um, places here. It's like the tort system. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But... uh, you're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Oren Kerr back on the show. Um, and Genevieve was the genesis for this. I think that Genevieve, do you want to talk about kind of what you were curious and wanted to talk about today? Yes, please. Um, I was just really excited because I was reading one of Oren's tweets and he made a comment about the um, current Supreme Court term and how they weren't really selecting any Fourth Amendment cases. And I thought it would be kind of interesting just to discuss um, the court just generally and also how um, their discretion kind of gives the court's characteristic. And I was thinking particularly because I'd seen you speak about the Warren Court and how they Um, handled race and how that became kind of not a theme, but a topic that they really focused on. And I I find it surprising, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, why this particular court is so reticent to deal with Fourth Amendment issues, or perhaps it's just not top of mind for them, while they will willingly engage with a lot of substantive rights issues, while they'll engage with like First Amendment issues, specifically around religion. And I think particularly there's a lot of um, administrative law issues that are coming up too, but I could be wrong. Yeah, so the, the Supreme Court has almost entirely discretionary calls as to what cases to put on their dockets. Um, there are some cases that they get that are mandatory, but Congress has basically said it's up to the Supreme Court to decide what cases to give themselves. Uh, and so they just pick the ones that, you know, that they have a standard under Rule 10 of the Supreme Court rules um, that basically says we look for circuit splits, disagreement among lower courts and, you know, and that's the most important thing that the Supreme Court looks for. Um, and so it's mostly using lower court disagreement as a proxy for what the U.S. Supreme Court should take, uh, should, should put on its docket. Uh, and what that means is that, like, a lot of issues that are super important where the lower courts are agreeing will just never get reviewed by the Supreme Court. And sometimes a lower court judge understanding... Like the meaning the- of Section 230. What's the meaning of Section 1030? 230, yeah, that's a good example. Um, Wait, no. and sometimes lower court judges will understand Rule 10 and will kind of intentionally prod them with a circuit <laughs> split in order to see, like, maybe we can get this to go up. I don't think they should, really shouldn't do that, but they do sometimes. Um, and so it's, it's, it's basically based on the assumption that the justices are generalists and they really don't know what's going on and what's right or wrong below. They they are just deciding the cases they decide. And so they look for confusion in lower courts as a proxy for like what they should be hearing. So it's almost like a delegation of authority to lower courts. Do you um, teach fed courts, Warren? I don't. Yeah, I never, never took have. it. Never have. Great course. I'd love to teach it some. That's one of my 
would love to teach someday classes, but I never see. I should have subbed in Krimlaw for for Fed course. That would have been like given like given the teaching pe the people who are teaching Fed course that year would have been good. I think Neil Kachal was teaching it. Uh, that would have been amazing. Anyway, but like I'm actually kind of a little bit curious, and one of the things was that Genevieve and I were kind of talking about beforehand was about like the how, which is the rule ten. Um, but one of the things that like, I think is kind of interesting and I was going to ask you about is like, you can certify a question, um, to, um, appellate courts as a district court all the time, but the, like the upper level appellate courts, like, uh, or an intermediate appellate court, like can't, can you certify, like, I don't think the circuit courts can certify a question to the Supreme court, but nope. state courts do that all the time. And like, so is that just not a mechanism that's in the rules? That's like the main reason. Yeah. Or because like, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, it, no, there's no way of doing that. So, so it, it, you know, it's I, basically the, the higher level you go, the more control you get over what, what you're doing. Right. Um, but that's so. not true of the state system. Like you can have like the, like the New York state court of appeals, like lets you, like you can certify a question to the court of appeals. They don't have to take it. Right. The Fed courts can, but the yes, the that's what I'm saying. It's like, oh, so so it's they, not they like... can. I see. So, so the, the, you're talking about sort of like flagging an issue for the higher court to take with a request that they take it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the lower courts can do that sort of. Like, you'll see opinions written by judges where they say, "We sure would like the U.S. Supreme Court to hear this," um, and the justices take that pretty seriously. Um, where you know, it's like, oh, okay. That's but when I do that, they don't take, they don't seem to take it nearly as seriously. And I, I, I have a hard time not taking that personally. Uh, so, Oren, I want to take Genevieve's question to its logical extreme. If you have a court that decides its own docket and in a similar fashion also decides the extent of the binding nature of its own precedent, which is to say they can follow their own precedents if they feel like it. They generally do, but there's nothing forcing them to. And they always have the option of saying, you know, that Plessy v. Ferguson thing, uh, you know, please forget we ever said it. Um, in what sense, when Amy Coney Barrett stands up with Mitch McConnell and talks about how the court is not political, is you know they seem to earnestly believe that and steve Breyer has been on a speaking tour assuring everybody that they're not political and you say here's a group of nine people that decides what issue they hear and decides if they want to follow their own rulings on those issues or just make up something new our word for that is political uh and so my question is is this just rhetoric or in in your uh, arena the the fourth amendment arena is there is there something that really meaningfully distinguishes the supreme court's adjudication of things from uh, more overtly political adjudications okay so there's a whole lot in there to, to unpack and so one part of this is i think you know the fact that the supreme court has a discretionary docket um, and has the power to overturn its cases. It means it has a lot of power, um, and that could be exercised in various ways. I mean, the fact that they have a lot of discretionary power will make it possible for them to 
use that power in political ways that might otherwise be cabined by rules. So in that sense, they're free to be political if they want to be. But, you know, I think they do exercise that includes they could decide to exercise their power in ways that are not um, political, at least in kind of a partisan sort of um, what you know, I think most people would think of political sense. Um, the, there's, it's funny that when the justices say that they're not political and everybody kind of goes, you've got to be joking. I think there's something going on there, which is the difference between um, the vessel for a view and the process for vessels being sent out into the world if this makes sense so so if you're a justice you're gonna have to unpack that yeah, yeah. i don't actually know what you mean by vessels like who's the vessel like the vessel is loaded so um you know imagine it's a political system you're a member of the senate and you're you're the president or working in the white house you want a candidate who is reflecting your views, right? You, If you're the president, you want a nominee who's going to advance your political agenda. If you're a member of the Senate, you want somebody who's going to advance your political agenda. So they're politicians acting politically in the sense of who they nominate and who they confirm. And of course, they say all sorts of non-political things. This is the true commitment of the embodiment of the rule of law. I'm so delighted this person is here. Um, it's amazing they exist and they're just, you know, true, you know, they're they're just, you know, lady justice and that they're absolutely perfect. Um, and they have an incentive to say that, but of course they're politicians, so they're going to do that. If you're the nominee, you probably look at the world differently in the sense that, like, they're not saying, like, you better rule this way in this case. You're, they're like, we picked you. It so happens you have a judicial philosophy. Now, a lot of justices have, I think, an overly um, sunny view of their judicial philosophy as if they just sort of happen to find certain arguments persuasive and other arguments unpersuasive in a way divorced from their politics. And I think usually what happens is like, there's a couple different theories that are on the table and there's the one that always leads to results that you like. You know, well, that's, that's a cool theory. I got, I got to think more about that. That's pretty persuasive. Um, and so, so the justices will, you know, are there nominated by politicians, confirmed by politicians, and then are choosing among options that seem appealing to them, which is being propelled by their politics, but they themselves will not see themselves as acting politically. So there's, I think there's a way of reconciling this that is sort of reconciles their subjective ways of talking about what they do and our ways of thinking about the world they're in that kind of it puts it all together. They're not, they're not lying, but they're only seeing a piece of the puzzle. So can I, can I just like, I want to, I think that this is really good. And I know we're talking about the Supreme Court today, but I think that this becomes an issue writ large for how we talk about judges and the judicial process generally. And I don't think that like most judges that you would encounter in state trial or gen courts of like specific jurisdiction or things like that, like or who are, who run for election actually like uh, happy election day everybody forgot that that was today um but that like who run for election and things like that but i would say that a lot of them don't have judicial philosophies that there is a genuine belief that like most cases that come before especially trial cases like meh, like there are some like really interesting ones of course but like there's a lot of cases that just do fit very easily into like the law and there isn't a lot of like, there isn't a lot of like politicization. Um, I do think that this is something that we kind of, I, I think it's 
just like I kind of, and not to, I don't, I don't really want to like know if I want to open this can of worms, but like, I think the U.S. legal system and like our, like our law schools spend way too much time on the federal system and like kind of like kind of lauding the, the federal system for, you know, for various reasons. Um, I think that there's, that this is like something that we don't talk about enough. And people think that the Supreme Court justices who are incredibly kind of political for all of the reasons that you said, and we all kind of are aware of, that that is like a trickle down theory or something that I just don't think holds. Would you agree with that, Oren? Or like, do you think I'm off base? I think there are a lot of legal disputes where there's a clearly correct answer um, and where judges normally reach those answers. And when they don't, it's that they kind of messed up, not that they yes. were like trying to get to some results, just like they didn't know enough about what was going on. The lawyering was bad. And that that's what did that led, led to that. So so I think that's I think that's true. Um, I think we also care about the political cases. So if you look at the Supreme Court's docket, we only talk about like a quarter of the Supreme Court. It's as if there are 10 cases before the Supreme Court and not, you know, 70 or 80, because if it's not political, who cares? <laughs> it's like those are not the cases that anyone's going to, you know, oh, it's a statutory case involving bankruptcy law. You don't mean procedural cases are absolutely riveting for the yeah. rest of the public? <laughs> a lot of people, they just don't care. Um, and so it's, you know. It's a culture wars case. That's what we care about. And those will be the kinds of things that people have strong views of. And those are the kinds of things that people divide on on political lines. And so so it's a subset of the work that's done. Um, uh, and, and, and at least in my area, in Fourth Amendment law, what I like about the kind of issues that I spend time on is that they don't divide neatly along ideological lines. Because ideological lines are so boring. Like, wow, there's, you know, there's the left side of the, the left view and the right view and the left will take the left view and the right will take the right view. And you count them up and like, what is there to say about that? Like, that's not interesting. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole there's a whole cottage industry of law professors that try to come up with interesting things to say about this just ideological divide. Um, and so what I think the fun questions are where there isn't an ideological divide or where you get kind of left, you know, you, you'll have like a view embraced by a wide range of people or or judges i mean what i love about the, especially the tech law and criminal procedure part of this like you know judges are like what is the right answer like that's hard um and so there there's a sense of open-mindedness that you see in some areas that are less common in other areas where the priors are super super strong all right so let's talk about a divide oh hold on I, read, I also i want to just really quickly like we should but i want to flag that we have to get back to the substantive question that genevieve raised which is like why no fourth amendment cases this term that's sorry. what i'm doing oh okay sorry <laughs> ideological divide about the fourth amendment that is not left right in character uh akil amar begins his famed constitution and criminal procedure article about the fourth amendment if memory serves with the line the Fourth Amendment is a disgrace. Orrin Kerr, Fourth Amendment expert, is the Fourth Amendment a disgrace? Yes or no? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there. We've identified uh, a firm. Why did your beef with Akil Amar, Orrin? Jesus. Why do you hate Akil Amar? Yeah. Yeah, why do a... you hate Akil Amar? <laughs> I don't like Akil Amar. I just think he's wrong on the Fourth Amendment. 
I'm joking. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and, and this is where, you know, like, th this is where my Burkean instincts point me in different directions than a lot of law professors. A lot of law professors, the whole ideal of an academic view is like a novel theory, a new direction for the law to go in, where everything in the past is bad, and we need to, like, branch off into this whole new world. Well, that's what Akil does in the in that essay. That is what he does in that essay. That's what a lot of law professors do. And so there's a... There's, um, a lot of interest. If, if you collect them, um, law professors talking about how terrible the Fourth Amendment is, awful, horrible, disgrace, embarrassment, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I actually think that it actually makes a lot of sense when you put it all together. Now, I'm a Burkean on a lot of issues, so I tend to look for like, okay, what worked in this? What is function is this serving? And and we can understand it better and see what is actually serving a lot of important purposes, and it all kind of fits. And so that's my instinct is to kind of say actually there's a reason why things are the way they are instead of like let's get rid of it but i i can say that i've um, written articles that started with the discussion quoting everyone else about how terrible the fourth amendment is and um and then i said actually, i disagree and good. <laughs> here's why they're wrong and the most cited part of that article is that first paragraph where i just summarize how embarrassing everyone else says the fourth amendment is and they just ignore my Okay, so let's uh, use this to pivot back to Genevieve's original question, which is you have a, uh, a cool, uh, non-hand-waving uh, non uh, affection for the kind of slow uh, common law development of uh, Fourth Amendment law, the incremental stuff you see where other people see incoherence, you see a complex tapestry of increasing uh, uh, detail and a, a, a basically rational way of seeing it, um, seeing things, and uh, you are relatively complacent, I don't mean that as a criticism, but just as an observation about the flexibility and durability of this complex sort of Talmudic uh, system uh, for the future, doesn't that answer Genevieve's question why the Supreme Court can take a few years off if it wants? You know, and like, you know, they they had some things to say a few years ago about, you know, listen, uh, location tracking on cars. And now they, you know, want to focus on abortion and, and <coughs> Texas's... Uh, uh, complex, you know, scheme of enforcement and they want to, you know, do some other stuff and the Fourth Amendment will be fine for a couple years if they ignore it. I mean, I want you to answer, Orin, but I'm going to say that this is like, I feel like right now, the way that Ben just described it, it's like that Looney Tunes scene where they get paint, where they, they're painting the floor and all of a sudden they end up in the corner and they're like, oh, crap. And they're, maybe they're just waiting for the paint to dry so they can walk back across the floor and finish the job. So that's too harsh about the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So, so Ben, I, I think the problem with your view is that it leaves me very little to write about for the next year or two. You've written my, a lot. My interest. <laughs> My interest in getting Fourth Amendment cases on the docket is a purely self-interested. And, and for those wish. who don't know, Oren is, I think, the number one most number cited one law professor by judges in the country because they all have Fourth Amendment cases. Wait, it's like more than that. He's nah, just like the number one. That's cited. not true. 
Anyway, uh, it's it's really it is Anyways, for, whatever. Like, assuming arguendo. That is, he's written a lot <laughs> assuming, of stuff. Assuming that's true. No, but you know, for those of us that 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 are all uh, sort of, you know, what's the Supreme Court doing and care about changes in the law, you got to get cases on the docket, or else what do we talk about? So that's that's part of my campaign. I, I, I do see that as a problem. This, this is just this is a public law scholar crisis of legitimacy, and if we don't get cases, we're going to have to talk about lower courts, people. And so oh my. let's understand the nature of Everyone, this. let's make um, some new law because Orin is bored. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. No, but to, to answer your question seriously, I think, you know, I, I think this is often true. You know, you never know whether the Supreme Court taking a case is going to make the law better or worse. That's true. Um, so, you know, it's I think it's true in a lot of areas of law. If they took a couple of years off, it could be a significant improvement. Um, it all depends on um, it all depends on what they end up doing with those cases. Why are they not hearing any Fourth Amendment cases specifically? I think there are two things that are going on. It's, part of it is just probably just luck of the draw in terms of when really juicy issues with a deep circuit split happens to get to the justices on an important question. And then part of it too is that um, there's with the technology cases, I suspect they in general want to wait um, and not try to rush into the, the tech cases because the tech could change. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense. You kind of kind of wait until the technology stabilizes before you pronounce, here's how the law should apply. So they're doing, I, su I suspect, what, what the Supreme Court bar would call percolation. That is sort of letting, letting the lower court sort of struggle with what the rules should be and just waiting for a while until it's much more kind of stable. And then they'll come in and they'll figure out what they want to do. But with the rapid evolution of technology, is it a realistic thing to think we'll ever get to that point where tech is stable enough that they'll be able to take the time and rule on it? Or would the core principles of the issues being discussed, essentially like a mobile device holding personal information, no matter how much that tech changes, is still the core principle? And is there any like circuit split that you think could be addressed or should be addressed by a higher court? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the issue. There's some some issues I think are surprisingly stable. So, um, you know, should the Fourth Amendment apply to email? Um, should it protect the contents of email? Email today is basically the same as email when it was invented, you know, whatever, 50 years ago. Um, and so um, and so there's not a lot of change in it in the basic idea. And so that's something where, you know, it's basically just content messaging. And that's, I think, fairly stable. Where, where you run into issues of technology changing rapidly, you know, I think Carpenter, the Supreme Court's case from 2018 on cell site location information is an interesting example of this. The record of the technology they had was that the cell site records were only within like, I think around a mile of, of precision. And then there was all this speculation about like, well, I'll, you know, someone wrote a brief, like that's gonna change. That's gonna, it's gonna become really precise. And then the justices get their case and they're trying to come up with a rule for cell site location information. And the government says, well, this is really imprecise. You only find out like within a mile of where someone is, you can't really track them. And the justices are like, we're gonna assume this is really imprecise because we think that's where this is going. Well, if they're wrong, their rule kind of looks silly down the road. If they're right, the rule looks prophetic, but there's something to be said for waiting until you kind of know what the like what the facts are going to be in five years or 10 years. So you don't have to revisit it. So, have an <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I mean, I teach, 
I teach your a number of your essays when I teach information privacy, obviously. I spent a lot of time on like the Fourth Amendment and kind of ideas of privacy out of the Fourth Amendment. But one of the things is it sorry, and it has been a year since I've taught it. So like I'm trying to remember the case, but it's the it's the it's the container case. It's the 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 liking the the is it is it the cigarette? Yeah, it's like basically liking the Roberts. the 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 a cell phone to the to a container that is similar to like a like an empty cigarette pack holding heroin um heroin capsules. And so that in a search incident to lawful arrest, which of course is exempt from a warrant requirement, that the idea is that you have if you have the right to search a uh perp's pockets uh for and like find some type of like container that then has illegal drugs and contraband in it if that is okay within the search for for incident to lawful arrest then you can search a container like a cell phone like that's that was the, that that right like i forget which case this was. that was the early the early, the early there were both cases like this um, robin i can't remember oh uh, you yes. versus robinson was the the cigarette yeah was the, was the yeah. actual cigarette case right yeah. Um, and there were some early cases. So when I was in law school, this was that was where the law was was liking likening um, cell phones to those. And the conversation was quickly becoming turning into well, you should be able to do it incident to a lawful arrest because you can they can brick a phone or erase it remotely. That was like nascent technology, but that was mm -hmm. clearly where it was going, right? And then the other thing was that it was like clearly like this GPS thing in your pocket and that it was like every, it was just like the, the technology had just jumped from yeah. like overnight from flip phones to everyone had smartphones. It was like in two to three years. Yeah. And so like, nice. yeah. And so <clears throat> I do feel like the court got better, but like, um, I don't know, like, how do you, how do you possibly have a window on that of like, where, where, like, where, if you're, if you're thinking about the evolution of tech in terms of like some type of periodic evolution, <laughs> like, like, where do you pick your periods that you're going to like, start to set down tracks, right? Like, I just don't really quite know. The Jurassic period. <laughs> yeah, that's I where mean, it is right now. I think as long as you're attuned to the problem, then that's really the answer is like, just you just need to focus on it and be aware that there's this question of timing. Um, but I think that slows down the justices from trying to grapple with issues um, that they might otherwise be interested in if the technology were stable. And I think a great example of this is uh, the Justice Department filed a cert petition last year in a case called United States versus Kano. Um, on searching cell phones at the border. Um, yes. And there's a lot of lower court disagreement on, you know, there's like a five-way circuit split now. On, it's also a really, border searches for people that don't know are very compelling for national security. And like, first of all, they're compelling just doctrinally. There has been great latitude given 100 miles, like from every border to, to border patrol, like have like this ability. And full computer searches have always been uh, I, I mean, I seem to remember, like, there's that case in Vermont. Uh, sorry, I can't believe I can't remember case names. I've never been good at this. I'm the worst law professor ever. Like, I would go in to talk to my judge, having just read a case, and been like, uh, uh, like, and give the entire fact set and not be able to give him the name of the case. But anyway, um, 
I do think that that like this is just so. Anyways, there's a total exception made for border, like not an exception, just a much, a much lower, a much lower standard for need for needing a warrant, um, right? Yeah. Well, when so, it's so originally, yeah, the traditional rule is when property crosses the border, it has no protection whatsoever, and right. so government started searching cell phones and laptops crossing the border, and then the Ninth Circuit started saying this is in 2014 in a case called Cotterman. Um, well, reasonable suspicion should be required to search a phone rather than no suspicion because there's so much stuff on the phone. And then, you know, lower other lower courts are saying, yeah, well, some agreed, some disagreed. And you can see the direction of the law is towards greater protection. And if we wait another two or three years, I'm guessing there's going to be a circuit that says the border search exception should not apply at all. Um, to searches of digital devices over the border, which I suspect is probably the right answer, sort of taking a big picture look at the border search exception. Um, and it's and a huge the, loophole. The technology the miles is huge. It, well, the, there's some of that is like an extended border search rule, which some circuits have, which is sort of its own technique. We're not going to get too too technical on that, but um, there there's um, um, the technology is changing. What people bring across the border is changing. Technological alternatives to border searches are changing. So, you know, if you can just encrypt your files and bring it across the border or pop it up into a server somewhere and then get it from where you are, then it may not matter what the border search exception is. And so, and, and similarly, right, if you pack cocaine or fentanyl into your cell phone and they search that without a warrant, I don't think the Ninth Circuit is going to say, you know, the border search exception is about like what you physically packed into your phone rather than that. What, what is um, right? It's like it's not the physical object of the phone. It's the right. data stored on the phone. That's right. Yeah, there actually have been some cases of cell phone search in the sense of like taking apart the cover and finding something underneath the cover. And then of course it said, that's not what we mean by a cell phone search. That's just a Right. Question. Yeah, I do. Okay. I actually do remember. I, yes. Okay. Also like- I, well, Hide your contraband made... in cell phones and laptops, people. That's the key <laughs> advice coming out of you. You, oh, you at least have an argument that you don't have if it's just in the bag. Just like an entire computer built out of cocaine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Quite a brick. Great. Yeah. Um, sorry, we're full of good ideas here. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks. Good one, Genevieve. Um, so, so sorry, or in continue with what you're saying, I think that we kind of like interrupted you. No, but it's, it's all a good reason why the Supreme Court is better off taking its time. Mm -hmm. um, wait for another case. This issue isn't going away. And that the, the quality of a decision you might get if the Supreme Court takes this issue in 2025 is probably higher than the quality of the decision you would have gotten in 2021 if they'd taken this case. And so this is all a good reason to wait a little bit, as frustrating as it is for public law scholars who want cases to write about. So so these are all good reasons why just everything's taking time. But but it is kind of amazing how much time it's taking in some ways, because like the Supreme Court first started talking about new rules for digital Fourth Amendment stuff like 10 years ago, maybe, depends on which case you consider, you know, Jones yes. maybe in 2012. Jones, I would um, say yeah and then oh Riley God. in 2014 and Carpenter in 2018 already? yeah these are like time is moving um and so so this, this is growing really slowly deliberations in law school holy cow i'm really old yeah. that's terrible oh man yeah so so time time, time is, is the, the cases are evolving slowly there's a ton going on in the lower courts 
Um, but at the Supreme Court, not not much is happening right now. All right. Before we go to audience questions, I just have one more small question. If you could have a law enforcement agency in front of you and a criminal in front of you, and you could design the perfect fact pattern, tell both sides what to do. Maybe there's a tech company there too. You instruct them, they will follow your instructions to tee up the perfect, Orrin Kerr wants to write a law review article and the Supreme Court needs to consider this issue to really make it timely. What would you tell the criminal to do? What would you tell the platform to do? What would you tell the law enforcement to do? The only consideration is, because that's what we're talking about here, is your academic gratification. <laughs> um, this, is the, this is a good question. It's a, just a quick question before we go to audience. Yeah, so, so I would actually say, um, you know, I have an article forthcoming on internet preservation uh, when the government sends a request to preserve an email account and whether that's a Fourth Amendment seizure and if so, um, what needs to justify it. So I would actually say this is super easy to do because this happens like 100,000 times a year. Just have a defense lawyer challenge the preservation because that's a problem where the fact pattern happens. I mean, I'm, I'm most interested in things that are happening anyway. Um, what I'm concerned about is like, is there litigation on it? So I would I would basically tell defense lawyers, please file these challenges um, uh, rather than just plead guilty. So what's a preservation order for those who don't know? So this is a there's a statutory authority. It's actually just a request. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're an FBI agent or any government, any state or federal right. law enforcement agent, you don't you, even have to be a government you agent. To an file agent. A, you can just be. It can be done in private actions. Uh, well, it's not legally binding though in private actions. Yeah, so it, no, it's it not. It has to be. But... It has to be a state or federal government employee can say like Wittis. Hmm. Wittis might be involved in crime. I want you to copy all of Wittis's email accounts and hold them for 180 days. And the provider will say, okay, okay, that's cool. Uh, some police officer or some agent said to do it. So they will actually run off a copy of all of your emails, uh, your entire account, and just hold it. Um, and you could decide to delete your account or delete your emails or whatever, but they will still have a copy of it. And if later on the government has probable cause to get the contents uh, from the provider, they will then turn over the copy that they had stored, you know, 180 days before. Um, and so this raises super interesting Fourth Amendment issues of is it a seizure? Is it a government seizure? When is it a reasonable government seizure? Because right now the government does this without any cause at all. And they do this like incredibly frequently. Um, especially with Facebook, because everybody's got Facebook or so many people have Facebook accounts and they have them in their own names. Um, so if the government has a suspect, they'll just be like, preserve or incur's Facebook account. And the Facebook will do it without any asking any questions at all. No court order, no nothing. Does it um, matter if the user is an American? No. Okay. No, I mean, it might that might determine whether they have, whether they have Fourth Amendment rights. Um, but the authority is just for any account. Um, and so that's one that I think that's going to be a super interesting issue once the courts start considering it. And the, the, the only reason the courts aren't considering it is defense lawyers aren't making this argument. Um, I, and so I want to make, push them to do it. That's a really, I think that's fascinating. I really like that. That sounds great. I can't read to, cannot wait to read that article. That sounds like really, really good. Um, 
separately, can I like get the court to preserve my email exactly as it is at inbox zero? And then I don't have to answer people anymore, Orin? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <Just> file, <laughs> file an inbox zero request. Is this and, legal uh, advice? In any court, <laughs> and they will be. No. You know, Jonathan Rausch's uh, uh, no mail service. Uh, it, it's it's going to uh, be made up to look exactly like Gmail, yeah. but uh, whenever somebody sends you uh, an email, it sends it directly to the trash and sends them a <laughs> notification that, um, <laughs> that, that, that their mail has been disappeared and you will never respond to it. And I love it, that. It, it always says to you, congratulations, you have no new emails. That's amazing. It's nice. like, yeah, I would love that. Dr. Doom, you're lurking in a voice-only presence. Go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, I guess I was voted up here. Wow. Yes, you were. Um, you're very um, popular. Professor Hatch, I, I've got to say that the degree of self-delusion required for, for the justices to deem themselves apolitical is just wholly un, un, not believable. Uh, what real evidence on the things that they care about uh, is there for that in which they have a conflict? And uh, Amy Comey Barrett, for instance, uh, you know, is risking her eternal, her eternal life if she votes for Roe v. Wade. If she owned Apple stock, she wouldn't be able to, uh, she wouldn't be able to uh, um, judge a Apple, a case involving Apple. Um, why shouldn't she be recused from a case like this? Why should she be any more recused than somebody who believes with all her uh, passion uh, that somebody should have the right to make uh, an abortion decision herself? Why, why is belief on one side more controlling uh, than because she risks because side? she risks something of infinite value to her, just as somebody a, that, that who was Europe. You're applying now a, a a standard that's radically diff, you know, would radically affect religious people more than irreligious. Yes, people. it would, wouldn't it? Interesting, uh, Oren. I mean, I guess if we lived in a world where that was the recusal world, there would just be someone yeah. who, with identical views to Justice Barrett, who had them on purely secular grounds, who would be nominated, and we'd be in the same situation. I think that that's right. There's always the idea that like, yeah, I, I do. I do see Dr. Doom's point, though. I kind of want to like make a case for this, which is like, I don't actually think I'm always kind of air on the side of like, I think people misunderstand recusal and how kind of how how justices can be uh, impartial. But I do think it is like a little strange that we assume so much that financial factors are so dispositive in recusal decisions and such a bright line. And, and and like, and like, I think that his point that if like, wouldn't you rather have a hundred thousand, wouldn't you rather have like, wouldn't you, which would be worse, like losing a hundred thousand dollars or eternal damnation. Like if that's what you truly believe, or like that would be the outcome of a given decision that you I'm have. I'm sorry, then like, but we, we don't demand recusals based on people's beliefs. No, I, we I demand know, Ben. We're arguing about the fact, he's bringing up the fact that if we allow, if we think that people can't set aside their beliefs or like their interests 
when it comes to money. Why do we think that we like, why do we think that like, uh, like an eternal decision would basically like be something they can't set aside? I, I totally understand. Okay. But, but let's, let's leave the eternity out of it and just say strongly held. But every judge has prior articulated strong beliefs because of cases that they've ruled on. And you can't say, well, Judge Justice so-and-so dissented in this case and took the following position. He clearly believes it, so he should recuse from this case. Um, And I don't really see how strongly held views, religious or not, as articulated in opinions are different from strongly held views articulated in uh, law review articles or under oath Senate testimony. Isn't there also an argument to be made that if her jurisprudential choices or any person's jurisprudential choices came too strongly to reflect their own religious views that you could argue that they were some, and it was very overt, that they would be then mixing church and state and therefore you'd have something where you can say it's not good behavior. I mean, that would be something that you could raise theoretically as a challenge. Uh, I mean, maybe, who knows? I just, questioning how religious a person is and it implies that they're incapable of separating their civic decisions and their jurisprudential knowledge from their religious beliefs. And, And that's a little scary. Yeah. And similarly, somebody who's not religious, you know, would we assume that they can't decide a case involving religion because they don't have a personal experience? But I mean, I think I think they're all judges. They're all going to have strong views on some issues, not so strong views on other issues. Um, let me let me go back, though, to the to the big question of sort of the whether the justices are always acting politically. Um, yeah, you know, I think, you know, the, the one test for whether a, a judge is acting politically is whether when they look at their rulings, do they think, God, half of these are stupid. <laughs> half of these are so dumb. Um, I can't believe the Constitution protects that. That's ridiculous. Um, but the other half, you know, they, they still seem to be good. Um, and we don't have many judges who um, have that view of their rulings where they, like, agree with half of them and disagree with half of them from a policy standpoint. Um, um, uh, and, and I think the fact that we have so often agreement between what judges uh would like to see in the world and their views of the law um, is is a sign that they're being influenced by those factors. But, you know, it's fairly rare to find those people who are not being influenced by those factors. So one one I posted this on Twitter um, you know, uh, recently. It's always bad, bad way to start a conversation. Um, but if you're you know, if you think the other side is acting politically in the Supreme Court, do you think your side is acting politically in the Supreme Court? And yeah. this always struck me as kind of realistic thing. Those guys, they're political. And I think they're wrong 100% of the time. I'm always on the other side of them. They're political. I'm not political. It's like, well, wait a minute. If you're always on the other side, aren't you being equally political? And, you know, some people on Twitter are like, oh, okay, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> and then other folks are like, no, I'm rule of law. They are political. And I th- I just think there's a you know, there's a natural correlation between those views, and it'd be better if there weren't. Um, I'd rather live in a world where there isn't. Um, uh, But realistically, there is. And that's, you know, that's the system we have. I, I completely agree with that. There's no way 
that like that the liberal justices aren't. I mean, we call them the liberal justices. Like there's like a voting block, and they're all the same. I mean, like that's it's absolutely correct. Um, and just because I agree with them doesn't. Yes, I completely agree with that. Like it's a very political type of position. That doesn't mean that people also, as Ben has stated, like cannot change their beliefs, both on cases that have come before them and on like any facts that are before them or kind of like, or, you know, or anything else. Um, I still think that this is my point about recusal and money though, is like a good one. Like why the hell, like, do we care so much about that? Like, I don't give a shit about money. So like, why, like I shouldn't have to ever, if I'm ever a judge, I should never have to recuse myself. Um, I don't know. Like, that's just kind of, I we think care about it. Cause it's objective. It's objective. Yes, I know. It just, easy, seems, yeah. it just seems yeah. measurable. Like it's just, right. yeah. Exactly. Well, also, also because the sense of interests as in conflicts of interest actually refers to money. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's yeah. ruling, it's ruling on a matter in which you have a, an interest, meaning a stake financially in the outcome is literally the meaning of conflicts of interest within it in this sense. Yeah. Richard, please ask your question. Nice to see you, sir. Nice to see you. Nice to see all of you. Uh, even Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, uh, never mind. <laughs> okay. Um, I see what you did there. Uh, yeah. Brother, uh, man. Uh, there were things uh, to be. Maybe we should ask. Maybe we should ask Orrin Kerr to resolve our dispute about Bruckner. Does this mean about that I'll Bruckner? never have to hear about it again? <laughs> Orrin Kerr, Richard and I have a long-standing dispute about Anton Bruckner. Without telling you uh, uh, who's on what side, Anton Bruckner, thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, oh, no, I've yes. actually never listened to any Bruckner. I'm totally making this up. I have oh. No, oh. No, no, don't do that. We almost were done with this. <laughs> <kind of shit. laughs> you will never. Something good? Um, At your funeral, Kate, we will be arguing about Bruckner. Is, is there a piece that I should start is. with? It's like representative. None. No, there is not. <laughs> I just, yeah. I just, anyway. Hi, Richard. Thanks Hello. For coming on. <laughs> Thank you. Well, nice to see all of you. Um, so, but I'm just curious, um, Oren, about your your thoughts about the tech, the competence of uh, judges in the federal system, including Supreme Court, to to deal with um, the technology uh, that's behind a lot of the cases. And you know, I, I I realize it's a wide spectrum. There's some that will actually get in and and learn to code and things like that. And that uh, that strikes me as sort of the exception rather than the rule. So I'm wondering what it, what do you think about it and does it matter? When they learn to code, little known secret of the Supreme Court, actually the only program they learn is in basic and it is 10, print high, 20, go to 10. No. <laughs> For those that of you that learned basic in the 80s, that yeah. was like the first program they had used. Joke, Orin. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, a little better than Bruckner. I mean, I know nothing about. I know, right? Because um, some of us have standards. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is a, this is a constant problem um, for, for them, and I think there are a couple solutions. One is that Amicus briefs that explain the technology can go a long way towards giving them some ideas to what's going on. 
Um, and I think clerks probably can play an important role in explaining the technology uh, to their justices. And, and just awareness that this is a problem is something that helps. Um, there, there were early cases. Uh, there was an oral argument back in 2008 or something like that uh, involving pagers. And the justices made all sorts of silly comments during oral argument that made obvious they had no idea how the technology worked. Um, and they looked really, there were like New York Times articles about how, how silly their comments were. Um, and um, I think after that, they got a lot better um, and were much more careful. And in cases like Riley, uh, uh, less so Carpenter, but Riley is maybe the best example in 2014, very self-consciously focused on accurately describing the technology, like pages of sort of like, we are going to engage with this carefully. So. So I think it's always a, a, a dynamic, but one that they can solve by just being really careful. Okay. Um, let's see, Christopher, go for Good it. Good evening. Hi, uh, Oren, or Hi. Professor Kerr. Um, so for the, I don't wanna call us amateur court watchers, but for, for, for those who may only tune into like one or two uh, oral arguments a, a, a year and aren't intimately familiar with like the nuances of a case or know every single ruling that a justice has gone through how do you rate those who say things like oh well this justice seemed very skeptical of of of, of the arguments like they based on their on their questions uh, or comments during oral arguments how much can we read into or not read into uh, and can we can we dispense with the idea that you can predict the, like the based on like oral the, arguments like the, the 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 swing justices at least and you know for, for, for every like comment from clarence thomas that makes it sort of seem like he's going beyond his like obvious position or presumed position i mean do we just sort of say let's see how they rule and not figure it out from the question. Yeah, so some justices will have a track record on that issue that gives you a pretty good idea of where they're going. And some justices are asking, there's a wide range of questioning styles, which give you some idea. And some some justices make really clear, like, um, um, they'll be like, so counsel, please, surely you're not arguing uh, the following position. Like that is really clear where they're coming from. And other times there's just sort of like um, more like good faith, like I'm struggling with this question. I'm not sure of what to do. And um, uh, what do I do with this? What do I do with that? And they, so they each have kind of their style. And when you're familiar with their each of their styles, you can kind of get a feel for where the different ones are coming out. Um, but a lot of oral argument is also about persuasion, justice to justice. And so... Yeah. This was especially true when you had like, you know, Justice Kennedy in the, in the center or Justice O'Connor in the center where there was a lot of questioning, which was like, you know, counsel, isn't it true that? And they'd kind of be like looking at their, looking at that swing vote, like uh, here's something to think about. And it was basically question, ar making arguments through questions. Um, and the counsel sort of was almost irrelevant to that uh, uh, role. Um, and so you can't really, you know, you can, you can get senses of what that judge justice was trying to do from the question, which gives you some feel for which side they're on. Um, and so 
you can get a feel for kind of where things are going from that. But um, it's, 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 it's like knowing, it's like listening to a conversation of people you know, right? Or friends of yours, your neighbors. I got a feel that my neighbors were trying to do this, or I got a feel that this is where the views were. Um, and, and it's not an exact science. And sometimes you just have no idea how it's going to come out. And sometimes they don't know where it's going to come out. So you kind of have but, to wait. But minute. there was a, I believe she was a Georgetown law student. I'm not sure. Um, but it's, a, uh, I forget her name. Uh, she did a uh, study of could you predict justice's rulings by oral argument? Because everybody says, well, you can't predict what a justice is going to do based on oral. And her conclusion was, what she did, she listened to, you know, she a coded whole it session. up. I remember she that. coded yeah, it like, up. Yeah. How often and found and found that you could actually totally predict what justices were going to do based on oral argument. Yeah, I think I think the the tell that some have focused on is just justices ask questions to the side they disagree with. I think that was the, you know, like basically when someone gets up there and they start saying all these things that you think are totally right, you're just basically sitting there going like, yeah, yeah, that's totally right. And you don't need to say anything. But when you're like, that's completely wrong, that's when the justices will tend to talk. So was, I think I think it was like the amount of time they spent speaking was a signal of which side they were on, which I think is is right, apparently. That that makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, I have a really important final question for you that comes from Mateo, who we couldn't get to come on. But Mateo asked, if a surgeon were reasonably suspected of hiding a murder weapon within the body of one of her patients, would the Fourth Amendment prohibit investigators from cutting the patient open to retrieve it? What does this turn on? I think, I think that, yes, I'm really sad that we didn't get to ask this in like Halloween or something. It feels very ghoulish. So this does come up in cases. And the Supreme Court said in a case called Winston versus Lee, that uh, it's a reasonableness balancing test as to whether a warrant can be obtained. So a warrant is needed um, to, to retrieve something from a body, but there are some cases where a warrant can't be obtained. Yeah, if you've got it, good, that's perfect. Um, you gotta have a warrant to do that. So in Winston versus Lee, it was a, a guy who had a bullet in him and they wanted to pull out the bullet to see if it matched the suspected because um, uh, it was like a bank gun. heist or something. I feel like it, he'd taken one like in like collateral. The, yeah. yeah, and and so and basically it was like the, the the claim was if you withdraw this bullet, it could kill the person because of where the bullet happened to be lodged. And so don't withdraw the bullet. Um, and the court said basically if it's going to cause dangers to the life of the person uh, who has the evidence in them, no warrant can be obtained. Otherwise, a warrant can be obtained. So so it's a warrant rule, but sometimes it's actually the. The one area of Fourth Amendment law where the Supreme Court has said it's so sensitive or so private that even a warrant can't be obtained based on probable cause. Um, I just remember so deeply in my Fourth Amendment class when we were learning uh, plain view doctrine and the entire class just quizzing our crim pro professor uh, and asking her all these questions and it finally ended up with what if it's a midget policeman and they're standing on a ladder and they see something at the top of a cat and it was like this crazy like kind of construction like is that like in plain view then and Warren would have 
a law review article to write, and he would I... be sated <laughs> by the docket, whereas now he's twitching with uh, irritation and boredom. Yeah. Well, I just I just hope my appearance on this show can help bring attention to the cause of more Fourth Amendment cases being needed on the docket because it's really <laughs> it's a public awareness campaign more than anything. Yeah. No, I I, I think that I, we hear yes. you. Um, and you're pleased. Or incur uh, in papers. Yes. We will uh, we will all tweet about the problem, and um, and. I thought we all agreed that it was a good thing that they stopped, and took these breaks and let the technology like accumulate percolate except for Oren. I don't, I don't think yeah. Oren <laughs> agrees with that. I think Oren is uh uh Oren is, you know, he's jonesing. Yeah, yeah. it's good for, it's good for the, the world. <laughs> it's not good for the professors. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. Oren Kerr you're uh, a great academic. You're a terrible <laughs> American. <laughs> wishing, <laughs> wishing for the the uh, premature consideration of issues for your own personal gratification here. Thank you for um, thanks for coming back. We will be back tomorrow. I will be a little bit more with it. I hope. Uh, I have no idea who's going to be on the show tomorrow. I'm not sure any of us do, uh, but. Uh, Listen, all of you, your pleas have been heard uh, uh, about the Tucker Carlson documentary. We are putting together a watch party. Uh, Scott Shapiro and I uh, and Mike Pesca, we're going to all watch it at the same time and record our reactions. Uh, and um, so you don't have to. Um, and uh, so stay tuned on that. I was going to do that this evening, but I just don't feel up to it. All that will start 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. And until then, Oren Kerr. I don't think he knows the sign. And until then, Genevieve. Oh, we can't have fun. <laughs> yeah, we don't have fun anymore. We don't have fun anymore. Sorry. No, you got it. And we can't but even have fun. Fourth Amendment cases from the goddamn we, Supreme Court. Yeah, there we go. Defense attorneys, please. <laughs> Come to our aid.